On December 21, 1992, just four days before Christmas, students at Roristown Elementary School in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, were excited to attend their morning holiday school assembly. Miss Christy Marak, the school's sixth grade science teacher, was always punctual and arrived at 8 a.m. each morning, but she hadn't on that particular day. After making several phone calls to the young teacher's home and getting only her answering machine, the school's principal became concerned and decided to make a trip to Miss Morak's house to check on her. What he discovered was beyond anything he could have imagined. Join me now as we take a deeper look into a murder case that went cold for over 25 years while the killer, a fixture in the community, hid in plain sight. We'll discover how a family and police department refused to give up hope in their search for answers, no matter how much time passed by. A cold case that would be the first ever in the state of Pennsylvania to use breakthrough DNA genealogy to solve a homicide. As a child, Christy Ann Marak would assemble her stuffed animals and pretend she was a school teacher, instructing them at the front of her classroom, a make-believe playtime that later transformed into a career goal for her. Christy wanted nothing more than to become a school teacher and often worked several jobs while attending classes in order to pursue her dream. Miss Marak attended Our Lady of Lords Catholic School in Shimokin, Northumberland County. A former high school teacher and coach, Bill Gilger, recalls her being a bright, generous, and pleasant young woman. She had a way of always picking up the mood of other kids and teachers around her, Gilger said. Christy was a member of the student council, the yearbook and newspaper staff, the pep club, and a number of school organizations. She was conscientious dependable, and creative. Everyone at her high school had a sense that Christy would make a fine teacher someday. After graduating from high school in 1985, Christy went on to pursue a graduate degree in elementary education from Millersville University. As you can imagine, it was with tremendous pride when Christy accepted her first position in 1990 as a teacher at an elementary school in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Christy found a townhome on William Penn Way in the Greenfield Estates Complex, just 15 minutes from the school. In order to save some money, she shared the three-bedroom townhome with another young woman named Mary Lesko who was also similar in age. 
During her first year at Roarstown, she taught remedial reading to first graders and began her second year in the same position. When the second semester started, she took over a first grade class after the teacher went on a sabbatical. Christy did such an outstanding job with the first graders that she was invited to apply for a full-time sixth grade opening as a science teacher. And she got it. It didn't take long for Christy to win over the hearts of all her students and co-workers. It was clear she absolutely loved being a teacher, and that's why it was so completely out of character when she didn't show up for work that morning. Christy was reliable and always punctual. But on December 21, 1992, Christy never arrived and hadn't called. Once colleagues realized she wasn't there, the school principal made several calls to her home with no answer. Next, he called her mother, hoping perhaps she'd heard from Christy, but she hadn't. Worried, the principal offered to make a trip to Christy's home to check on her. He hoped that perhaps she just had a flat tire or something else had tied her up. When he arrived at 9 a.m. to the Greenfield Estate Complex, he noticed right away that the front door to Christie's townhome was slightly open. As he got closer, he could see Christmas presents scattered all throughout the front entrance. He wasn't prepared for what he was about to see next. After he stepped over all the gifts and entered into Christie's living room, he found her, still wearing her coat and gloves, laying on the floor. She'd been badly beaten, and she wasn't moving. Christie had been murdered. She'd been attacked on her way out the door while carrying the presents. The presents were books called Miracles on Maple Hill that Christy had wrapped for each of her students. Inside the front cover, she had written a personalized message for each child which said, Wishing you a very Merry Christmas and a great 1993. Love, Miss Merak. After speaking with Christie's roommate, police discovered she'd left at 7 a.m. and that normally, Christie would leave at 7.45 in order to get to school by 8 a.m. But somewhere in between those 45 minutes, someone had managed to brutally attack and murder Christie. At 11 a.m., about 90 minutes after the initial 911 call was made, Approximately 12 police officers descended upon the scene. Christie's blue Honda Prelude was still parked in a space near the apartment. After examining the front door of Christie's townhome, it appeared that there was no sign of damage or forced entry. Due to where the gifts had been thrown and Christie's body had been found, police believed 
the perpetrator had likely waited for her to open the door before immediately pushing her back inside, where she was then subdued and assaulted. Police suspected she must have either known her attacker or her attacker had been stalking her and knew her. As news of Christie's murder began to spread, the principal knew he needed to act quickly and implemented a crisis plan for the school. Within a very short time, he had organized a team of people to arrive at the school to lend support. The team included five principals from other local schools, two psychiatrists, and clergy members from various churches. Once everyone arrived, teachers were pulled out of the holiday assembly and told the heartbreaking news about their colleague. Later, teachers and counselors broke the news to the children. It was an extremely upsetting time for everyone. A parent of one of Christie's students remembers when she first heard the devastating news. Sarah came running up to me and said, Mom, Mom, Miss Marat died. I literally put my hand over her mouth. I said, Sarah, you can't say stuff like that. And then I looked at Mrs. Stetter and I looked on her face. And I knew. On December 22nd, a press conference was scheduled in the afternoon at the local police station. The purpose of the briefing was to provide an update to the public on the investigation. Police shared they had about a dozen detectives working on Christie's murder and had conducted a door-to-door survey of neighbors the same afternoon she was found. An autopsy later showed that Christie's jaw had been broken. Her face had been so severely beaten to the point it was distorted and she had bruises and wounds all over her legs, arms, chest, and back. There was also evidence that she had been sexually assaulted. On December 27th, Christy Ann Marak was laid to rest after an emotional funeral service at St. Stephen's Catholic Church in her hometown of Shimokin, Pennsylvania. Attending the service were colleagues of Christie's from the elementary school, along with many of her students. Two of the students read from the Bible, while a fellow teacher led the congregation in prayer. It is a cruel irony that we gather here this Christmas season in the midst of the bright lights, flowers, and the nativity scene, said Reverend Joseph Lotz, who presided over the Mass. It just doesn't seem right that we are here today, remembering a violent act against Christy and her family. As the service ended, Christy's parents, brother and sister, walked down the aisle alongside Christy's casket that had been draped in white as it was being carried 
out of the church. On January 1st, 1993, investigators began seeking a muscular white male who had been seen parked in a white car near Christy Morak's townhome on the morning she was murdered. Sadly, despite the new lead, the case quickly went cold. In the days, months, and years to follow, police identified and eliminated over 500 suspects, but they refused to give up hope. Lieutenant Robin Weaver was on patrol the morning Christie was killed. Hate to think about it, you know, it's, uh, it's a very tragic day. Um, you know, we get reminded of it every year at this time. We desperately want to solve this case. Uh, we're very determined to do so, you know, for the family and, and for uh, Christy. The community, the police, and most of all, Christy's family would not stop looking for answers. Her killer was still out there. Near the 10-year anniversary of Christie's murder, her mother, Jerry, gave a heartfelt interview, asking for any new leads into her daughter's unsolved murder. Christie's mom had been diagnosed with terminal breast cancer, and her greatest fear was dying before finding out who had taken her daughter from her. Sadly, in November 2002, Christie's mother died without that answer. It was then that Christie's brother, Vince Marac, took up the family torch to try and find his sister's killer. In 2007, determined to keep Christie in the minds of everyone in the community, he had a billboard put up in Lancaster County appealing for any information in Christie's murder. The pain is always there. I mean, it's, there's not a day that goes by that, you know, we don't think about her. Two years later, in 2009, Vince set up a Facebook page providing a place for people to share their memories of Christie or any information regarding the case. And every year, on the anniversary of Christie's death, Vince, along with the police department, offered a $10,000 reward, asking for any new leads. We could find the person who did this and make them pay for it through justice system. That's, that's exactly what our goal is here. Surprisingly, it took 25 long years before police would finally get a break. In October 2017, District Attorney Chris Stedman and the Lancaster County Cold Case Unit decided to turn to Parabon Nano Labs for help in a last-ditch effort to try and identify Christie's killer. They had learned that Parabon Nano Labs, based in Reston, Virginia, was tracking down suspects using DNA and family trees using one of the newest crime-solving tools called genetic genealogy. Using the DNA 
collected from the murder scene back in 1992, Parabon was able to build a genetic profile of the suspect. Dr. Steve Armentrout, Parabon founder and CEO, explains the power of DNA in helping to solve cold cases. DNA is a very robust molecule, and, and provided it's stored in a, a good environment, you know, it can last for even hundreds of years, thousands of years. Parabon created a process called Snapshot, which is able to read hundreds of thousands of genetic markers to predict a person's ancestry and physical appearance. It's so detailed, it can go as far as determining a person's eye color, hair color, skin color, and even the shape of their face. Dr. Ellen Graytech, the director of Parabon's Bioinformatics explains how their snapshot process is helping investigators with cold cases. About half of our cases, a little more, we can get a good enough hit. The genealogy is, is feasible, that we can generate maybe not the identity of a person, but significant leads for the police. The DNA results from Christie's murder were of a man of Northern European descent and of Puerto Rican heritage. The sketch was then age-processed from 30 to 55 years. While the sketch did manage to keep the case in the news, it unfortunately failed to turn up any new solid leads. But all hope wasn't lost. About a year later, Parabon approached the Lancaster Law Enforcement Cold Case Unit again, but this time with a new testing technique the GEDmatch database. Those familiar with the East Area Rapist case will remember that the original Night Stalker, Joseph D'Angelo, was caught using the same cutting-edge technology. DNA is run through the database, looking for a possible familial match. The cost of this test is $2,000, making it a viable option for a large portion of cold cases, with testable DNA material available. In the case of Christy Marac, a familial match was made after a half-sister of the suspect uploaded her DNA to the GEDmatch database. Once the familial match was made, Lancaster hired a genealogist named Cece Moore to reverse-engineer a family tree using the new DNA. Once she was able to build profiles of the grandparents and second cousins of the suspect, well, the rest just fell into place. The crime scene DNA was uploaded to GEDmatch, and then based on the people that were sharing DNA with that unknown criminal, I was able to point the police in the right direction to find him. Of the six samples available for testing, all six were matched to one individual and it was determined to be a 1 in 250 octillion match. 
It was a man named Raymond Rowe, who was very popular in his area, kind of famous, named DJ Freeze. He was a popular DJ for weddings, for clubs, and he was living what appeared to be this normal life, a wife and a child, had a really um, strong media presence, social media, so I could learn a lot about him. He had interviews online. So it was shocking to find out that this person was hiding such a deep secret. Born in 1968, Rowe went to the J.P. McCaskey High School in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and started out as a break dancer before finding local success on the wedding circuit and at private parties, DJing for celebrities such as Paris Hilton. This is DJ Freeze. He also started a DJ school where he trained a younger generation of hopeful and aspiring disc jockeys. He was also the house DJ at the Chameleon Club. According to the club's website, the Chameleon put Lancaster on the map in the early 90s as the number two music industry hotspot. One of the greatest places to see live original music and the most promising up-and-coming bands producing over 200 shows a year. There is no other live music venue in central Pennsylvania that even comes close to the amount and caliber of acts seen live on the Chameleon Club stage. But Ray's success in the DJ industry hadn't seemed to transfer over to his romantic life. Divorced three times and on his fourth marriage, most recently, in January 2013. Ray seemed to struggle maintaining a relationship for any significant length of time. On May 31st, 2018, hoping to collect a fresh sample of DNA, law enforcement decided to follow him for a bit. Undercover troopers got a sample of his DNA from a piece of gum and a water bottle after he DJed a gig in May at Smoketown Elementary School. They now had solid evidence and could finally arrest him. But Roe denied raping and killing Christy Marac. In fact, he said he didn't even know her. He also insisted the DNA match was an erroneous mistake. However, the testing results were definitive. Roe, who would have been just 24 at the time of the crime, was 49 when police were finally able to arrest the person who so brutally took the life of Christy Marac. Today, we are announcing the arrest of Raymond Charles Rowe for the murder of Christy Marac from December 21st, 1992. He is being charged with one count of criminal homicide by Detective Christopher Erb from my office, a Lancaster County Detective from the DA's office. He was arrested today at his home and will be taken to Lancaster County Prison. Uh, he will not be eligible for bail for this offense. The community was in shock to learn that one of their own could have been responsible for such a horrific crime. Oh, I was completely shocked. And my brother 
going to school dances with him as the DJ. I mean, that's just so shocking. He's around kids all the time, and to think that he did something so terrible. Yeah, it's shocking. I was shocked. Couldn't believe that we had just been right with him the three days earlier. Anita and Ryan, who were childhood sweethearts in Christie's sixth grade class and eventually got married, were shocked to learn about Raymond Rowe's arrest after almost hiring him to DJ their wedding. He was a very popular DJ and well-known in our community, and we asked to have him as our DJ, but he was unavailable. I think it's just an eerie situation. Christie's brother, who was just 21 years old, at the time of his sister's murder stated, it was a bittersweet moment for us, a whirlwind of emotions. Well, my heart felt like it stopped. I mean, it was like a ton of bricks fell off my shoulders, but it was a relief. I still say to this day, I feel like that part of me is now, that part that's been pushing on me for 25 years is gone. Although many in the community who had heard of Raymond's arrest were shocked, there were quite a few that weren't surprised. One of those people was former girlfriend Emily Noble, who had dated Ray for a brief period of time back in 1996. She was working as a cocktail waitress at the Chameleon Club while he was working as the house DJ. He was also married at the time. In an interview with 2020, Emily said it didn't take long for him to become possessive, jealous, and emotionally abusive. Emily recalled him saying to her that she was worthless, along with other insults and put-downs that made her feel horrible about herself. Thankfully, she saw the warning signs and moved away to New Mexico. At the time Emily was dating Ray, her appearance was eerily similar to Christie's. She couldn't help but wonder, if she had stayed with him, what might have happened to her? Others who were not surprised by the news of Raymond's arrest were some of his social media followers, who had started to notice that his online posts leading up to his arrest became increasingly opinionated and agitated. Lancaster Online managed to track a few followers who had recently defriended him because of his posts. Marcina Tail said her Facebook feed was filled with people talking about it. Everybody had the same story. Everybody that I know was like, I defriended him. I defriended him. Marcy stated that she stopped being his friend on Facebook not long after the 2016 election. But she was surprised to see how many others had done the same. Was it possible that Raymond Rowe knew that investigators were onto him and was getting nervous? Did he realize it was only a matter of time before the dark secret he'd been hiding for a quarter of a century would sooner or later be revealed to the world. 
Vince Marac was shocked that the murderer wasn't anyone he'd ever heard of before and had been convinced all these years that the perpetrator must have been someone his sister knew. The original FBI profile also stated they thought the suspect would be someone known to the victim, someone who lived a quiet and reclusive life. But it turned out to be the complete opposite. DJ Freeze loved the spotlight and even gained celebrity status in the Lancaster community. In late 2018, Ray Rowe pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, rape, and burglary in a negotiated plea agreement that dropped a potential death sentence. The judge sentenced Rowe to life in state prison without the possibility of parole. At the hearing, Christie's brother Vince Morak spoke. He said, The killing, which occurred four days before Christmas, destroyed his family's sense of security and their love for the Christmas holidays. But most of all, you took our Christie, he said. I can only hope that the remainder of your life is as painful to you as the last 26 years have been for my family. This case certainly has riveted our community for so long. What stands out for us is, is not only that you have this actually truly innocent victim who was making the community better, teaching her kids, taking presents to her kids that day, who gets brutally sexually assaulted and murdered in her home, where you have a right to feel safe. You know, no family should have to endure this, what they lost with their daughter. Of course, her life was lost. But the length of time that the defendant just went back to the community and enjoyed his life is chilling. It's haunting to all of us that he could just compartmentalize this and go back and, and literally enjoy his life. I mean, he was, a, he was a local celebrity, DJing events, went on to get married a few times, moving on as if nothing had happened, just like he walked away that day after he had strangled her and, and raped her, closed the door and went back to his life as if he had done nothing wrong. And he continued to do that for, well, decades and, and for longer than she was alive on earth. And, and we're not gonna get that time back. Stedman went on to confirm that in 1992, Mr. Rowe had lived just a few miles from Christie. We found out that he, at the time, lived in the 400 block of East Chestnut Street. He worked at Service Master, which was actually just down the road from where Christie's apartment was. It would have been a natural way for him to go from the city on Pitney Road to make a right on William Penn Way. He would have passed her apartment hundreds of times and seen her there. One of the things that we know she was doing at that time and again, I can't prove this, that he saw her. They would sunbathe outside of her apartment right there, right alongside the road that he would have, he would have been driving by. Again, 
I can't prove that he saw her there, but we can prove that she was sunbathing at the time on a road that he would have naturally driven by. In addition to that, we also uncovered as part of our investigation that in that time frame, in the spring and summer where she was murdered, there were three incidences of what you would, co you would commonly describe as a peeping Tom at her apartment. Uh, we don't ever got a great description other than it was a male. Um, he would have fit the general description, but so would have tons of other people. But it does stand out to us. And again, I don't know whether he was the individual or not. I think many of us do think that, yeah, it probably was him and he was probably looking, but we can't prove that. One of the things that stood out to investigators was that on the morning Christie was murdered, a number of witnesses had seen a small white car in the vicinity of Greenfield Estates. The time frames were all between 6 and 7 a.m. in the morning. One sighting was literally right outside of Christie's apartment. The description was of a white Toyota Celica. After arresting Raymond Rowe, they discovered that he'd actually been driving a white Toyota Celica at the time. Stedman also addressed whether or not there had been a connection between Christie and Raymond. We can't actually prove the connection to her. Literally, I can say that talking to her friends and looking at his employment record, so he was starting his DJ business, had started a little before that, many of the same clubs that he was working and, and associated at, she was going to at various occasions. Can I tell you that they actually met and talked? The answer is no. I can tell you at the same time frame, they're about the same age, they're in the same social circles, he's doing, he's DJing there, and she's there, and in fact, in her wallet was a uh, reference to the Chameleon Club, which is one of the, was a ticket to the Chameleon Club, which is one of the places where he was working at that time. So again, I can't prove that they met each other, that there was any kind of encounter there, but we can prove a circumstantial link um, through that socially. There isn't, there isn't any other tie. There's no thing that we can say, here's the moment where they met. I can't prove it exactly, but all these facts, I think, add up to more evidence against him uh, and incriminating evidence and try to, try to tie it. One reporter asked Stedman, if any motive had been established for Christie's murder. Did you ever get a why, why he did this? No. The lingering thing that I think is going to go on forever, one of the things that the family wanted to know, one of the things we all want to know. I don't think we're going to know that, and quite frankly, when the bottom line, I don't see how it matters. He's a rapist, and he's a murderer, and he's going to spend the rest of his life in jail. What could he say that would diminish the, the culpability? I think curiosity, you'd like to know. I'd like to know. But for the bottom line, it ultimately doesn't matter. This was the first time this type of technology was used to solve a homicide case in Pennsylvania. Stedman went on to confirm that law enforcement was busy going through other unsolved cold cases to determine which could be used by this type of technology. I think it does offer hope to, to so many families that, that have lost hope or might, or might be close to losing hope and, and We've directed, I've asked for more money in the budget. Um, just having the outcome here and the publicity that you're going to give, I think, does remind all of us in law enforcement that there are cases, you know, even though they're 10, 20, 30 years old, that don't forget about them. Don't, they may be sticking back in the corner. I know there's a spot on the front burner, but, you know, they can't be forgotten. Their lives are just as important as everybody else's. So I think, I think this is not only great for Lancaster County and Lancaster County justice and the history of Lancaster County, but I think it's great going forward and that, that it does provide a beacon of hope. C.C. Moore, the genealogist in the case, 
hopes that her work will eventually become a deterrent to these types of violent crimes. She stated that if you're going to commit a violent crime like rape or murder, you're going to leave DNA behind. And if you leave DNA behind, we can find you. I think we can make society a safer place and hopefully even cause someone to stop and think maybe it could be a deterrent. It's not so easy to get away with crimes anymore. While Christie's murderer was able to forge out a life in the spotlight filled with many firsts, Ray Rowe robbed Christie, her family, and her community of those same opportunities. Christie's murder not only left an unending impact on her heartbroken family, but also on an entire community. Harry Goodman, the principal who found Christie murdered in her home, chose to only remember the good things about her when she was alive and doing what she loved, teaching. She was kind, she was caring, she was effervescent, she was enthusiastic, she was dedicated, she always would strive for excellence. Sarah, who had been one of Christie's students, still carries with her a very special memory of her teacher. I was six. I remember being in the classroom and they were doing some activity with bees and she included me in. She put me right in the middle, stood me on a chair and they were dancing or singing around me and I was the queen bee. For years, Sarah's family have been tying yellow ribbons on the memorial tree that was planted on the front lawn of the Roarstown Elementary School by Christie's family. I would invite everybody to come that has a memory and tie a ribbon on those trees. After Christie was buried on December 22, 1992, family and friends sat in a circle as they packed her belongings and debated what they should do with the presents Christie had so lovingly wrapped for each of her students. In the end, they decided to deliver them to the Roarstown Elementary School just before the summer break in 1993. Students of Miss Christy Morak were advised that there was a gift waiting for each of them at the principal's office from their former teacher. One mother, who had nothing but absolute praise for the young teacher, said, it was a touching gesture. Another mother, whose daughter had Miss Morak in first grade agreed. She said, I saw the connection she had with children. I know she loved my child. As DA Chris Stedman wrapped up the press conference following the trial of Raymond Rowe, these were the words he had to say. There's nothing to celebrate about anything like cases like this. Uh, you want to do what's right. You do the right thing for the right reason. And we think we've done that today, given all the circumstances. But there's no high-fiving of anybody. It's just, you know, these guys that can tell you what they're doing. And what they're doing is moving on to another case. 
the family, of course, has got to deal with this, and, and um, we're going to be there for them to the extent that, that we can. I'd like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Amy R., Jack, Janine, Sheena L., Shelly L., Gayla L., and Janice. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts. I Said God Damn. Hey, true crime listeners, check out our podcast, I Said Goddamn. We're a true crime comedy podcast hosted by two besties who like to share messed up cases that make you say goddamn. Every Sunday, we try to one-up each other's story by sharing a horrific case the other has never heard of. Along the way, we splash in some wildly inappropriate jokes and colorful language. Listen every Sunday from any of your favorite podcast directories. Also, follow us on Twitter at ISGDpodcast or visit our website, isgdpodcast.com. And bloody murder. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a weekly true crime podcast that focuses on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. We're a comedy podcast with a dark sense of humour. But we're dead serious about murder and the people it affects. We find humour in some unexpected places. But never at the expense of the victims or their families. We've been described as the blue cheese of podcasting. Addictive, strong and satisfying. And a bit stinky. I am not. You know you are. Bloody Murder is available on your favourite podcatcher. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorrecords.com.au slash G-E. Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause